From Idaho to Ohio, Maine to Texas, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the Biden administration wants the U.S. military to convert to all electric vehicles. Myron Ebel from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here to discuss the folly of that proposal. U.S. Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland has announced his retirement. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on the impact. The Supreme Court of the United States will be ruling on the constitutionality of President Biden's so-called student loan forgiveness program. But there is more to the story. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has a report. And the nation has hit its debt ceiling, but the sky is not falling. There is still enough incoming revenue to pay essential bills. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. From blocking the construction of new power plants to converting the U.S. military to all-electric vehicles, climate change activists are advancing an abundance of unworkable proposals. Myron Ebel is here for a discussion. He is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Myron, the... U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Grantholm, is making a proposal that would require all U.S. military vehicles to be electric vehicles, not vehicles that burn carbon fuels in the future. What is she proposing? And then we'll get into exactly how realistic is that. Secretary Grantholm was asked about this at a hearing, a congressional hearing, and she said, yes, I I think it's it's doable that we can electrify the military's fleet by 2030, and she implied that, that the Defense Department was working on that. I hope they're not, because it, it's absolutely nutty and crazy. It might work for the Pentagon parking lot if they have put in a lot of chargers that all the guys, all the thousands of men and women who work at the Pentagon in desk jobs could drive their cars in, uh, electric cars, and get them charged but you know the idea of the army with a with long supply chains halfway around the world in rugged hostile terrain what are they going to do run a long extension cord to charge them up or they my guess is that they would have to have diesel generators on trucks to uh, charge up the EVs that they they're they're using so uh, which would completely uh, obviate the whole scheme the administration seems to be moving forward here, Myron, simply on ideology and more far-reaching and equally as not thought out as this proposal. The president a couple of weeks back, Myron, suggested that we implement regulations that would move our civilian vehicle fleet, all of the cars and SUVs and trucks that we all drive, to electric vehicles much more quickly. What did the president propose there? The Environmental Protection Agency, under the Clean Air Act, proposed tailpipe emissions rules for greenhouse gases, that is carbon dioxide, which is what you get when you burn a fuel. And so a, a gas engine or a diesel engine would have to meet a, a new standard, which would basically be impossible to meet, and therefore most of the fleet would have to, that would be for sale for new, new cars and, and uh, pickup trucks would have to be 
electric vehicles to meet these for the automakers to meet the standards, which would be not for each individual vehicle, but for all the vehicles that they sell. So this would force about two thirds of new car sales. It's estimated, or 60% of new car sales by uh, 2027 model year uh, into electric vehicles. And that so it, it would it would do two things immediately. I mean, it would reduce consumer choice. People wouldn't have a choice. It would raise the cost of uh, internal combustion engine vehicles because there wouldn't be very many of them available. And it would probably also increase the cost of electric vehicles because the automakers would have to ramp up so quickly to sell uh, more electric vehicles. So the the whole thing is really a way to price consumers, uh, poor people, out of uh, mobility. One of the companion pieces to this, Myron, is... If you're going to have all these vehicles powered by electricity, then obviously we're going to have a tremendous demand for more electricity and new sources. At the same time, Myron, the environmentalists are opposing the construction of virtually any new type of power plant. Has anybody thought as to how we're going to actually power all these vehicles? Only people who oppose the proposals have thought about it. The people who support these things just uh, keep saying, well, it, it'll happen and it'll work. And then they point to studies uh, by university professors and technical experts that say, it's possible, this is possible that we can do this. They don't actually show how it can happen and what are the dangers and risks that the the grid will, uh, the electric grid will become increasingly unreliable and subject to blackouts when we get more and more wind mills built and more and more solar panels put up. It's my experience that solar panels don't work at night and the wind uh, doesn't blow all the time and therefore we are not building enough natural gas plants. We're not building any coal plants at all and uh, it takes uh, 15 to 20 years to build a nuclear plant. There are two new nuclear plants coming online this year in Georgia that have taken about 15 years and they're billions and billions of dollars over the original cost estimates. So we're, we're looking at an unreliable grid and higher electric rates, and then we're going to have to charge our electric vehicles if we're uh, wealthy enough to own one. We're going to have to charge it when the power is, is on and forget about it when the power is off. So uh, this is not a... We're moving from a first-world developed country into something that's uh, got very strong third world aspects. Not only that, but what does this do in terms of our dependence on China, Myron, because a number of the components that are needed for batteries on electric vehicles are sourced from China and other undependable countries. Are we also putting ourselves at a security risk here? Yes, Loman, I, uh, that's a good question. It was said after after the Arab oil embargo in, in the early 1970s and then the Nixon price controls, which uh, devastated our oil industry, that we were much too dependent upon foreign countries for our oil, particularly countries in dangerous parts of the world like Saudi Arabia, and that we needed to get off oil for our transportation fleet and we needed to uh, move to something else. Well, the shale revolution means that we are now the world's largest uh, oil producer and the world's largest natural gas producer, and there's a lot more potential to make to, to even increase the, the, the American production. But the EV fleet, the electrification, 
requires a lot of hard rock metals, minerals, critical minerals, they're called. Very few of these uh, is the U.S. A, a major producer. And in most cases, the whatever mineral it is we're talking about, it may be mined in Africa or somewhere else, but almost all of it is processed in China. So we would become incredibly dependent upon China for building our electric vehicle fleet and, and maintaining it. We have been talking with Myron Ebel, who is director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute Center for Energy and Environment. Myron, tell us just a little bit about CEI. Also, do you have a website where folks can go to read more about this topic? Our website is cei.org, and uh, CEI was founded in 1984 to be a free market public policy institute. Myron Ebel from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Loman. At the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson has been tracking all these U.S. Senate races that are taking place, a third of the U.S. Senate up for election in 2024. Some major developments over the last week or two. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks for having me back, Loman. Let's start in Maryland, which is not really a competitive state from a partisan point of view, but U.S. Senator Ben Cardin had a big announcement this week. Scott, what did he say? Senator Cardin announced that he's not going to seek re-election for the United States Senate race that's up in 2024. Senator Cardin is another one of these older U.S. senators that I think the energy and uh, campaigning that's necessary to exert over a two-year process and then a six-year commitment. So he's decided to, to hang it up there. Usually the Senate is a place that people go to retire, but he's actually going to retire from the United States Senate as well, which I think is a positive development, especially as we look at the electoral landscape of Maryland. This week, David Trone is expected to throw his hat into the ring for running for the United States Senate seat in Maryland, and that would open up a really competitive congressional district out there in western Maryland, the 6th District is a race that we only lost by about 2,400 votes and barely over 1% in the 2022 election. Neil Parrott was the Republican nominee. So I think that'll turn into being a primary that a lot of people are interested in watching, especially those folks over at the National Republican Congressional Committee and within the House Republican leadership in finding a strong candidate that can win that race in 2024. In terms of the bigger picture in 2024, Scott, does the Maryland race mean that in some ways Democrats are now going to have to focus a bit more on Maryland than they otherwise might have had to do? Well, it always creates a resource question, I think, for any party that is having to defend a large number of states. And in 2024, Republicans have three red states that are very much in play with Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. But then they have to think about some of these blue states where there could be either a competitive primary that is a vulnerability then later for the general election, unless they clear the path for Trone. Uh, I think you'll see Democrats have to spend money in the general election in Maryland, where otherwise they might not have to have done that had Ben Cardin run for re-election. So it is a resource question. Now, we know that Democrats are obviously very, very well funded, and it just stresses the point that Republicans need to field a strong candidate in Maryland to force them to spend money there so that we can have not only an opportunity to flip that seat when it's open, 
but also so that Democrats can't spend as much of their resources in those other Republican red states or in any of the toss-up states. You mentioned neighboring West Virginia, where U.S. Senator Joe Manchin is up for re-election. Uh, I, I suppose he hasn't yet said whether or not he's running, but there appears to be quite a Republican primary taking shape to take him on. What's happening there? Well, previously, Club for Growth PAC endorsed Alex Mooney, the U.S. representative from the 2nd Congressional District in West Virginia. We supported him last cycle as well in his head-to-head primary against another incumbent, David McKinley, and Mooney won that race resoundingly. So in this instance, Mooney is uh, going to be facing Jim Justice, the governor of West Virginia. Polling shows that usually Republican primary voters prefer to have the more conservative candidate. And I think when people peel back the record of Jim Justice, they will agree Alex Mooney is the conservative in the race. And so Club for Growth is going to be investing the resources necessary to be competitive through independent expenditures in the general election against Joe Manchin or somebody else if Manchin decides not to run. But the reality is that this is going to now be one of the more competitive Republican primaries in the country with Alex Mooney taking on Jim Justice. We, of course, will continue to track developments in Maryland, West Virginia, and many other states around the country, with a third of the U.S. Senate up for re-election in 2024. But more pressing, Scott, is the issue of the debt limit, which the United States has already hit. And we've been tracking that week by week to see what developments have occurred. Anything major this past week? Well, the big thing was Kevin McCarthy led a bipartisan delegation to Israel this week. And while he was gone, I think the Biden White House sort of woke up and realized that their posture of no negotiation on on the debt limit is not a tenable position. And so what you had earlier this week was Joe Biden calling on Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer and Leader McConnell to come to the negotiating table at the White House. Well, the problem here is, is that They're still saying they don't want to negotiate. They just want to have this meeting to basically bring all the leaders together and say, what are we doing here? How are we going to resolve this? We're at a stalemate. We don't want to negotiate with you. You've passed a bill with a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. This position, I think, from the White House is, is, is something that they're just going to have to deal with. Club for Growth released some polling last week that showed only 29% of voters believe that Joe Biden should not negotiate on the debt limit, while 53% believe he should, and then there's a bunch that aren't sure. The reality is, with a sizable margin in favor of a negotiation, and only 29%, 29%, those are like the Democrat partisan progressives that are wearing that blue jersey no matter what. And so I think that there is a real perception issue emerging from the White House on how they're going to handle the debt limit. We are going to, of course, keep an eye on that as, uh, assumedly, negotiations are going to take place here. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, he joins us every week to talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill and around the country politically. Scott, tell us a bit about the Club for Growth. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. The organization's united in economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. If you want to learn more, check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll check in with you next week. Thank you. Okay, thank you. President Biden's so-called student loan forgiveness program is under constitutional review by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
But the program goes beyond what is being considered by the justices. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine has the rest of the story. It's been more than three years since federal student loan borrowers had to make regular monthly payments or face accumulating interest. And it's now more clear than ever that the student loan pause has overwhelmingly benefited more affluent Americans, not the working class. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a look at Biden's student loan policies. There's actually kind of three parts to this. There's the student loan payment pause that has been in place and renewed multiple times since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. There is, of course, the Supreme Court currently considering Biden's student loan cancellation policy, which would cancel up to $20,000 in outstanding student loan debt for some qualified borrowers, $10,000 in outstanding debt for others. That currently is in front of the Supreme Court. And then there's also some changes that the Biden administration wants to make going forward to how student loans will be repaid, basically how much some low-income borrowers will have to pay back on their loans after they graduate. We're primarily going to focus on number one and number three today because the issue in front of the Supreme Court is going to be resolved one way or the other by the court. Nothing we say here will really have much to do with that. I think that's gotten all the attention, but these other two elements are equally interesting, at least to me. The student loan pause, let's start there. That the, the payments and interest pause that was put in place actually originally by President Donald Trump in March of 2020 has now been extended six different times by both the Trump and Biden administrations over the past three years. In November, President Joe Biden extended that pause until June 30th of this year. That gives the Supreme Court time to review that student loan forgiveness part of his policy as well. Now, from the start, it seemed pretty obvious that student loan debt relief would generally benefit wealthier Americans, since individuals from middle and upper income households are those that are most likely to take out loans in the first place, to go to college or to pursue a graduate degree. And the past three years have demonstrated just how unequitable the student loan pause has been. Here's what the Brookings Institution, a a left-leaning organization, recently said in a new report, quote, the payment pause especially benefits high-income households because they tend to have larger student loan balances and therefore higher payments. The report, which was authored by University of Virginia Professor of Economics Sarah Turner, goes on to point out that the student loan pause is, quote, appreciably less progressive than Biden's student loan relief plan, even though that too would overwhelmingly benefit affluent Americans. And it's less progressive because it would apply to all federal loans, not just to low-income borrowers. Turner goes on to warn that many low-income borrowers may struggle to make payments when the pause ends because their economic circumstances have certainly changed, at least in some small way over the past three years. It's been three years since these people have been expected to make a student loan payment. Turner concludes by saying that overconfident promises from the Biden administration about the likelihood of loan forgiveness have likely made existing relief programs less salient to borrowers. Basically, borrowers will not be as aware of what they need to do because they're banking on the fact that they're going to get student loan relief. But the court, of course, may strike that down. Indeed, the final result of Biden's refusal to restart federal student loan payments may be to crush the very low-income borrowers that the president has talked so much about helping. And this is what equity is supposed to look like? Biden's extension of Trump's student loan pause serves as another example of how well-intentioned policies can spiral out of control without a clear exit strategy. Some student loan borrowers may have needed temporary assistance during the pandemic, but transforming that temporary pause into a lengthy 
three-year-long pause on student loan payments has mostly benefited people that didn't need the help in the first place. Transitioning away from that, let's take a quick look at one other aspect of the Biden administration's student loan policies, the changes that President Joe Biden wants to make to the repayment plans going forward. I mean, assuming that uh, student loan payments are eventually obligated again. Under the plan that the Biden administration has put forward, the amount of discretionary income that undergraduate borrowers have to pay back would be limited to no more than 5% of their overall income. Their student loan payments could not be more than 5%. The current level is 10%, so it effectively cuts that in half. According to a report from the Congressional Budget Office that was released late last month, this change in the way student loan repayment would operate is ultimately going to cost taxpayers about $230 billion. That's actually about twice as much as what the Department of Education originally projected that it would cost. The Department of Education says $138 billion. And the key difference here is that the Congressional Budget Office looked not only at the way this policy would affect current borrowers, but at the way that it would change the incentives for future college students. Basically, the Congressional Budget Office concluded that these changes to the repayment plan by lowering the amount of money that some borrowers may have to pay back in the future would, of course, encourage more people to take out student loans and then not pay them back, which ultimately makes the policy more expensive. The Department of Education and its projections did not consider how these policy changes might affect decisions made by future college students. So what the Congressional Budget Office is telling us effectively is that not only will the program be more expensive than the Biden administration has said, but that it's actually going to encourage more people to take out student loans that they can't pay back. In short, what Biden is proposing to do is to fix a problem of students being unable to pay their debt by encouraging more students to take out loans that they won't be able to pay back. And I think this is a common theme through all three of these elements of Biden's student loan policies. You see over and over again that the administration is trying to solve one part of the problem, trying to deal with the fact that some student loan borrowers are having difficulty repaying their loans by enacting policies that will actually just make the problem worse in future years. In the end, the only way to deal with the student loan crisis is ultimately to deal with the fact that college costs continue to skyrocket because the government has subsidized higher education to such a degree. Ultimately, fixing the symptoms of this problem, fixing the debt that exists now without dealing with the underlying problems is only going to make today's student loan crisis look quite small by comparison to the crisis we're setting up in the future. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out more of our coverage of this issue and everything else going on in Washington and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Unlike the federal government, states must balance their budgets each year. That prevents problems like the debt ceiling issue currently being debated in Washington. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council talks about it on this American Radio Journal commentary. You may be wondering what the differences between Congress and a drunken sailor are. Well, a drunken sailor spends their own money, and they also stop spending when the money runs out. Well, Congress, on the other hand, spends well beyond its means every year, a problem that has brought us to the current debate over the federal debt ceiling. The federal debt now exceeds $31.7 trillion, while federal overspending has been at an all-time high over the last two years. That's now in excess of $247,000 for every taxpayer 
in America. While these are massive numbers, the sad truth is it's very easy to become desensitized to the magnitude of $1 trillion. But let's consider this for a minute. One million seconds would take us back 11 days. One billion seconds would take us back to the year 1991. But one trillion seconds would get us to the year 30,000 B.C. And 31 trillion seconds is almost one million years ago. Let that sink in for a moment as we consider the magnitude of our debt in the United States today. Spending at these current levels is unsustainable, clearly, and has abhorrent economic consequences, no matter how many times the debt ceiling is raised or suspended. For example of this, consider the last time the debt ceiling was raised in December of 2021, and the fact that inflation hit record levels in 2022. If Congress fails to start implementing fiscally responsible policies, Americans will pay the price in higher taxes, which are already at all-time high, and foregone economic growth. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently did her best Chicken Little impression, essentially claiming that the sky would fall by June 1st without congressional action. However, it's important to remember that Speaker Kevin McCarthy just led the U.S. House of Representatives in a recently passed measure to ensure that steps are taken towards fiscal responsibility as the debt ceiling is raised. Now the onus is out on Senate and President Biden to take up the House plan or to provide a real counteroffer. Also note that continued record high federal tax revenue will continue to flow into the government coffers, and Secretary Yellen will have money to continue paying the important bills. The problem is that she will have to prioritize the spending, and as a result, discretionary spending will be the last bills to be paid. The solutions offered in the recently passed House plan include returning federal spending to 2022 levels, capping the federal budget at 1% growth annually, rolling back wasteful spending from the Inflation Reduction Act, or the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and implementing work requirements for welfare benefits. These are all strong first steps on the long road back to federal fiscal recovery. Congress would do well to look to the 50 laboratories of democracy in the states, where 49 of the 50 states have balanced budget requirements in their law or their constitutions, contrary to Washington, D.C. Additionally, several states have real tax and expenditure limits, or TELs, like keeping a lid on spending in a reasonable way, such as Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which is the most well-known of state spending limits. Many states employ priority-based budgeting, outlined by us at ALEC in the State Budget Reform Toolkit, and something that can really help avoid disastrous spending sprees like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act at the federal level. Most good ideas do come from the states or local units of government, of course, from the people themselves. And once again, our system of competitive federalism points us to the right policy ideas that can help address some of the most challenging policy issues at the federal level. Emulating the examples of free market fiscal responsibility in the states is key to avoiding the debt trap like we are facing right now in Washington, D.C. Perhaps if Congress and President Joe Biden practice a little bit more common sense, kitchen table budgeting, which prioritize government services that are really essential to the core purposes of government, we wouldn't be facing the debt limit debate 
yet again. However, as the great economist Thomas Sowell at the Stanford University Hoover Institution reminds us that while the first law of economics is a scarcity of resources, we don't have everything that we need. The first law of politics is to ignore that first law of economics. Ladies and gentlemen, that pretty much sums up our national debate challenge right there on the national debt limit. For more information, please visit alec.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WZOBAM in Fort Payne, Alabama, WMTAFM in Central City, Kentucky, along with WMERAM in Meridian, Mississippi. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.